as Yogi Berra put it, it's like deja vu all over again. I first stood behind this pulpit 40 years ago. I was here candidating for the youth pastor position at Houghton Church. And I was scared to death. And I, the first thing I did was scan the congregation to find my fiance Nancy. And she was on the back seat there with Gus and Louise Prinzel, just as she is this morning. <laughs> Nothing changes. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 through 17. Matthew three thirteen. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this, to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am very well pleased. And maybe some of you are wondering why we were still singing Christmas carols. But I would submit to you that no one in the early church would interpret the words we just finished singing as celebrating the birth of Jesus. If the early church were singing the line, today he opens heaven again to give us his own son, they would picture in their minds this scene that I just read to you from Matthew's gospel. To the early Christians, hymn 112 would be an epiphany hymn. The fact is, Christmas wasn't much celebrated in the church until about the middle of the 4th century. I suspect it's because the early church knew that the real significance of Jesus coming to this earth starts right here on the banks of the Jordan River. The baptism of Jesus is the formal beginning of Christ's earthly ministry, what he came to this earth to do. And this is attested to in the Gospels by the fact that two of the four Gospels don't even mention the birth of Jesus. While the baptism of Christ is prominent in all four. Maybe the early church realized that what happened here on this riverbank really was an epiphany. A revelation that enables us to begin to understand everything Jesus says and does from this moment forward. So we count these 12 days of Christmas and come once again to this annual season in the church year where we focus on enlightenment and revelation. While so many around us have careened feverishly from Black Friday to Online Monday 
to celebrating some 20-odd days of Christmas, surviving the after-Christmas sales, and staggering finally into the final days of Toyotathon. <laughs> the church, in stark contrast, has quietly, reflectively moved from Advent into the Christmas season and now transitions into the season called Epiphany. This season where the lights come on regarding God's redeeming action in Christ. And for Christians, particularly those of us in the West, Epiphany is most commonly associated with the baptism of Jesus. Years ago, back in high school in Arizona, I became aware of something that happened every spring called cotillion. Cotillion is a very old social custom, particularly in some cultures. It was clearly very important in the Latino culture of Tucson, where I grew up. It was a really big deal for young women in Tucson society. It represented their formal coming out their debut into young adulthood, the official beginning of their life's journey. And I suppose it would be fair to say that the baptism of Jesus is a kind of theological cotillion. It is a debut. It is a coming out, if you will. It was quite a scene. This eccentric prophet named John drawing huge crowds in the wilderness, preaching baptism. A baptism of repentance for Jews, no less. Everybody knows that Jews didn't get baptized. That was for Gentile proselytes. That was for outsiders who wanted to join up. But something new is happening, and here's John throwing around not-so-subtle hints about the Messiah coming and suggesting that the only way to get properly prepared for his coming is to get into the water and get washed. Eventually, Jesus shows up seeking baptism for himself. This surprises us. We're surprised that Jesus would get baptized at all. It certainly surprises John. John had predicted that Christ himself would be a baptizer. He would baptize with the Spirit and with fire. So John is a little bit unnerved by this. And only Matthew has the story of John's challenge to Jesus. But it's understandable. If John's baptism means repentance from sin, what is Jesus doing here? Jesus insists that it is necessary to fulfill all righteousness. The old German scholar Adolf Schlatter put it this way. He said, Jesus is baptized not because he shares our need, but in order to share it. Jesus sought baptism not from a consciousness of sin, but from a concern for righteousness. This baptism is the first recorded act in Jesus' adult life. F.D. Bruner calls this the first miracle of Jesus. He says it's the miracle of Jesus' humility. The very first thing Jesus does for the human race is go down with it into the deep waters of repentance 
and baptism. This is fitting because this is what the rest of Jesus' earthly life will be. As Bruner reminds us, it is well known that Jesus ends his ministry hung on a cross between two thieves. But it ought to be just as well known that he begins his ministry in a river among sinners. I think that the baptism of Jesus helps us to see that without question that this is no virtual incarnation. When a sinless Jesus submits himself into the waters of John's baptism, a baptism for the repentance of sin, we begin to grasp the depths to which Jesus identifies himself with the human predicament. He truly is a friend of sinners. This baptism fulfills all righteousness in publicly declaring Jesus' deliberate decision To seek to live a life of righteousness. In other words, doing the will of God. But beyond this, Jesus' baptism fulfills all righteousness in that it transforms this act of water baptism, John's baptism of repentance, into Christian spirit baptism, which henceforth the Holy Spirit uses to turn all who are baptized into doers of righteousness. Now, Matthew says that this action on the part of Jesus brings forth three effects. An open heaven, a spirit dove, and a voice. Only twice in the Synoptic Gospels is is God, the Father, ever recorded as speaking directly to the world from heaven. It's here and at the transfiguration of Jesus. And in both cases, God the Father says exactly the same thing. This is my priceless son. I'm deeply pleased with him. Frederick Bruner said that the one thing that God the Father wants us to know above everything else is how much you and I have been given in Jesus This is my priceless son. I am deeply pleased. God is saying that this man, in this man, is everything I want to say, everything I want to reveal and do, and everything I want people to hear and see and believe. And if you want to know anything about me, if you want to hear anything from me, if you want to please me, then get together with this man. The single most important fact of this baptism is that Jesus is authoritatively installed as the anointed one of God. There is no other. And our understanding of God from this moment on must be filtered through the prism of Jesus. We cannot understand God if we do not engage him through Jesus. He truly is the way, the truth, and the life. But as amazing as this epiphany of Jesus is as the anointed one, this threefold effect that follows Jesus' baptism also enables us to grasp that something even beyond Jesus making his public debut is taking place here at the Jordan River. This is not simply the coming out of Jesus who is called the Christ. No, it is the debut 
of the fullness of the Godhead, the Trinity. David Fitch, who teaches at North Park Seminary, wrote, Just as the Spirit of God hovered over the waters of the deep from which creation emerged out of chaos and darkness, even so now the Spirit hovers over this one emerging out of the waters of the Jordan who will also confront chaos and darkness. And with this tearing of the heavens, with the voice of God, with the descent of the Spirit, we see, in fact, a new creation beginning. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, God, the three-in-one, the Trinity, are acting here in Jesus' baptism to begin this new work, tearing open a new possibility for a wandering and estranged world. It's as if God has ripped open the heavens irrevocably at Jesus' baptism, never to be shut again. To use common parlance, I think we might say that what this riverbank epiphany reveals to us is that the Holy Trinity is all in. In the context of first century Judaism, the heavens are opened once again, the Holy Spirit is working again, and the voice of God is being heard once again. I can imagine some of you saying, there you go, you professors. I mean, you had me until you got into that complicated three-in-one arithmetic that you call the Trinity. Why do you always have to muddy the picture like that? I'm reminded of a story I heard Alistair McGrath tell. He was visiting a little church up in the in a village of Scot in one of the villages of Scotland, and they this particular church they said the Athanasian Creed. And in the Athanasian Creed, you come to that part where it says, And I believe in God the Father, incomprehensible, and in God the Son, incomprehensible. And in God the Holy Spirit, incomprehensible. And McGrath says he heard an old Scotsman mutter behind him, the whole darn thing's incomprehensible. (laughs) Except he was a real Scotsman and he used the emphatic form of darn. (laughs) And very frankly, that's how a lot of people, even a lot of modern Christians, think about the Trinity. They see it as some nice little theological Rubik's Cube intended solely for the entertainment of the members of the religion department. Just leave me with Jesus and I'm fine. But folks, the baptism of Jesus shows us clearly that you cannot call yourself a Christian and just leave it with Jesus. Because Jesus was never a one-person show. Right from the beginning, he was always intimately connected to the person and work of God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. This triune God of ours is not some abstract, static, metaphysical being set far apart from creation, distant and removed. God the Father is not some ill-tempered judge who sends his son on some sacrificial suicide mission to earth to die and then beam him back up into heaven? No, when we take the gospel seriously, we discover that God is this lavish and excessively risky God who comes crashing into our world, who breaks through the heavens and enters this world and becomes one of us. And we discover that the Trinity 
this so-called archaic doctrine from early Christianity that is so often written off as too hard to understand, too philosophical, too intellectual, etc., etc., it doesn't make any difference in the way we live. We discover that at the very heart of this thing we call the Christian faith is the Trinity, God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The baptism is an epiphany, all right, but it's more than an epiphany about Jesus. This is a coming out party for the Holy Trinity. And the primary thing that we learn about the Trinity here is that this coming down of God is the defining characteristic of God. God is always going, coming, and sending in mission. We hear a lot these days about being missional. It's a hot term. Or uh, we, we talk about engaging in the missio day, the mission of God. But standing here on the riverbank of the Jordan River, we begin to see that mission isn't something we do. But mission flows from the very being of God himself. The heart of a God-centered understanding of mission begins and ends not with human activity, but with the activity of and in and through the Trinitarian Godhead. Before the church was ever sent into the world in mission, God the Father sent God the Son. As Jesus prayed in John 17, as you have sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. God has a mission, and God's mission needs a church. And that really is my point here this morning. It's one thing, it's nice, I guess, to, for you to all gain some sense of the significance of the, this epiphany on the banks of the River Jordan and why Christians celebrate this occasion. But this morning, as a preacher, I am far more interested in the possibility of an epiphany on the banks of the Genesee. Riverbank epiphanies are important because they just might occasion an epiphany on Route 19. So here we are on this first Sunday in Epiphany and we find ourselves illuminated not only about Jesus and the entire Trinity, but also about our own part that we have to play in this redemptive drama Epiphany is about bringing light and bringing illumination to bear on something. And that's precisely the church's marching order, as Pastor West stated last week. The church is the means by which the world will come to see the light of God. But we pursue this mission in particular ways and with particular understandings. We read earlier in Isaiah 42... The prophet speaking there about God's servant who in the power of the Spirit would bring justice to the nations and hope to all of humankind. But recall that Isaiah said that this servant of God pursues this mission in very non-conventional ways. That's precisely what we saw in Jesus. 
In fact, Matthew quotes Isaiah 42 about Jesus in chapter 12 of his gospel. This Jesus who surprisingly commanded the people he healed not to say anything about it. This Jesus who had this ability to attract huge crowds but never seemed to be taken with it, always seemed to prefer to be quiet and just with a few people. And fittingly, as Jesus said to his church on that first Easter evening, he said, as, as the Father has sent me, even so now I send you. And I infer from Christ's words that rather than adopting the ways and the methods of a world intoxicated with power and triumphalistic posturings, that we bring light to this world in ways that often do not make it necessary for us to even raise our voices. We speak peace to the world in a manner that does not snap a bruised reed that does not extinguish a smoldering wick. This is the mission of God's chosen servant in the world, fully modeled and exemplified for us in Jesus' life and teachings. How injurious has the church been in the world when it forsakes the ways of Jesus? One has only to think about the Crusades or the Inquisition or the so-called evangelization of the indigenous people of the Americas to understand how crucial it is that we not only adopt Christ's mission, but we also adopt Christ's methods. And then we read in Acts chapter 10, Peter's conclusion that began with his rooftop vision of God telling him to break the law as he knew it and to eat non-kosher food and how that vision then impelled Peter into the household of Cornelius, a Gentile no less. And Peter observes the Holy Spirit falling on this crowd of people whom he believed were somehow outside the possibilities of God's redeeming love. And so today we come to the church's mission fully confessing, like Peter in Acts chapter 10, that it is firstly we ourselves who need to be converted. We need to be cleansed from our shallow understanding of God's love. We need to be delivered from our all too common tendencies to keep God to ourselves, to privilege our own little group to entertain the fantasy that God has chosen us because we are somehow special in his eyes. In short, if we are going to take our epiphany calling seriously, then we have to first allow for what Daryl Guder calls the continuing conversion of the church. It has plagued the people of God since the days of Jonah sitting there pouting under a plant, wondering how God could possibly care a fig about pagan Ninevites. You fast forward into the New Testament and we see Peter and the early Jewish Christians confronted with the narrowness of their understanding of God's mission in the world. And you and I need to ask ourselves today, who are our Ninevites? 
Who are our Gentiles? Who are those thought to be beyond the pale of God's redeeming love? Who are those this morning that we find it so easy to exclude from the church's missional mandate to speak God's word and to share God's light with all the world? Anne Lamott says that you know that you've remade Jesus in your own image when he hates all the same people you hate. If we claim to follow the Jesus who arises from the River Jordan, then we must never impose our narrow visions upon him, but rather allow his vision for a reconciled world to consume us. As I considered this week Matthew's account of this momentous inauguration of Christ's earthly ministry, I was particularly struck by this image of the heavens being opened. It recalled to me the words, the opening words of Isaiah 64, where the prophet says, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. This is precisely what has happened on this riverbank out in the wilderness. God has come down. When Mark tells the story, this same story in his gospel, he uses an interesting Greek word that is used only one other time in in his gospel. It is a word that literally means ripped open. Here at the baptism of Jesus, the heavens are ripped open. The second and only other time Mark uses that word is in Mark 15, 38, when at the moment of Jesus' death, the curtain in the temple is ripped open, ripped apart. What began here in the baptism of Jesus is brought to completion in the death of Christ on the cross. God is set loose in our world for mission. God's very presence burst out into the world in and through the life and teachings of the Son. And today, in the year of our Lord, 2014, it continues in the body of Christ, the church, who filled with this same Spirit, takes the light of God into every space that we might inhabit. Watching recent accounts of the life and death of Nelson Mandela, I was struck by one presentation where the narrator said that when F.W. de Klerk released Mandela from that prison on Robben Island, he said it was just a matter of time before South Africa would change. He He said when Mandela got loose, South Africa had to change. At the baptism, God got loose in our world. In Jesus Christ, imbued with the Spirit, the triune God got loose. At Pentecost, the day of the church's baptism, the Spirit comes and loosens the tongues of believers and sends the church, Christ's body, into the streets of Jerusalem and into the uttermost parts of the world to continue what was started here at the River Jordan. In the church, in the likes of you and me, and of all those who are baptized, today is Epiphany. The light 
has shined in the darkness. And the darkness has not overcome it. The darkness will not overcome it. Because the darkness cannot overcome it. God be praised. Would you pray with me? Gracious God, we give you thanks for your word, for what it teaches us, and beyond that, for what your Holy Spirit is saying to us even in this moment. I pray for this great company of believers that all of us will take epiphany seriously into our hearts and lives and allow us to go into the world and let our light so shine that people will see our good works and glorify our Father who is in heaven. We pray this in the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.